Two Kids and a Career is a production of Jill Divine Media. I am going to give you a tip that no one knows. I am writing this down. Okay. (laughs) You can get wonderfully trained child therapists by contacting psychoanalytic institutes. Contact a psychoanalytic institute and say, my child needs child therapy or adolescent therapy from a psychoanalyst. And I know you have a low fee uh, referral service. Every psychoanalytic institute in this country has a low fee referral service where you can get therapy for as little as $35 a session. This episode of Two Kids and a Career is brought to you by Elemental Aesthetics. You can be guaranteed that your experience is going to be unique and customized to your specific needs. See how they can help you focus on natural beauty enhancements by visiting ElementalAesthetics.com. Hi there, and welcome to Two Kids in a Career. I'm Jill Devine. As an entrepreneur, wife, and mama, the daily grind of trying to build a business while taking care of kids and trying to maintain a healthy connection with my hubby, it's a lot. With this podcast, you're going to hear candid conversations with other moms, parenting experts who can share their knowledge and insight, or you'll just hear me rambling to get it all out. There's going to be tears, there's going to be laughter, but most importantly, there will be support. Take a listen and connect with me so we can grow and learn from one another. This is Two Kids and a Career. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and I have a repeat guest, which is always exciting because I love getting updates, but I also love to kind of go back and revisit our first conversation. So let me first welcome Erica Komisar to the podcast for the second time. How are you? Oh, I'm well. Thank you for having me on. So the first time you were on, July 8th, 2020, and at that time, we discussed the book that you wrote, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And it was a great Mm -hmm. conversation for me personally because, well, it opened my eyes to a lot of things that I did not know. It also opened my eyes to not understanding how things can get turned political quick. And you and I talked about Mm -hmm. that and how I, I just like to go into things with open eyes, fresh mind, and figure out what's best for me and for my well-being and my life. And you really helped me understand that a little bit more. I'm not sure if you knew how deep you (laughs) impacted me on that one, but thank you uh, for showcasing your honest opinion and also talking me through it and making sure that you answered my questions as well as understanding my opinions as well. So I'm going to refer people back to that episode, episode 37, if you're interested in hearing about that, because we are not going to talk about that book again, because in that episode, you teased that something else was coming. And I finally got word that that something else was coming and it's here. So it is time to tell the listener about your new book, which is so perfect for everything that we're experiencing right now. The new book is called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. So I don't know if you remember this or not, but I have a two and a four-year-old, and that was why we connected so well on the first episode because of their ages and all of the things that are happening with their brains and development. What I'm not prepared for 
adolescence, and I don't think I've talked enough about it on this podcast. I have a lot of friends that are in this stage of life, and so I knew I had to have you back on so that we can talk about it. So the floor is yours, Erica. Let's talk about how you got to this book and dive on into it. Well, I I got to the second book because adolescence is the second critical window of brain development. So my first book talked about the first critical window of brain development, right? Zero to three. Mm -hmm. And parents have the ability to really make it, have a great impact on their child's emotional and brain development. And um, the right brain is responsible, as we know, for so many important things, things like emotional regulation, meaning the ability to keep your emotions from going too high and too low, uh, and resilience to adversity and stress. And so we know that you can make a great impact in the first three years, but what if you miss the first three years? Or what if it needs reinforcing? And so we talk about then the second critical window of brain development when um, a lot of the same developmental things are happening. Um, The brain is reorganizing between nine and 25. First of all, adolescence is a lot longer than most people know. It starts earlier than people think, and it lasts longer than people think. And so it gives you a bigger window as parents to really make a difference um, in terms of laying down the foundation for your child for life with um, things like being able to regulate your emotions and be mentally healthy, um, but also being able to cope with stress. So something that I have not mentioned yet, just because I did refer back to the first time you were on, Mm -hmm. you are a parenting expert. So for those that are hearing you for the first time, can you talk a little bit about your background? Mm -hmm. So I started as a social worker. Um, And as a social worker, I was able to really see how the real, the real environment really affects children. Um, And then I became a psychoanalyst. And as a psychoanalyst, I studied one's interior, one's internal environment, uh, which is influenced by the real environment. Um, And over the years, I really, you know, got involved with parenting workshops and educating parents, because what I was seeing is that a lot of the issues over the years that I was seeing uh, in children and adolescents, um, you know, the behavioral issues, the increase in anxiety and depression, um, all of these emotional regulation and behavioral issues, including things like the overdiagnosis of ADD and ADHD, um, you know, which is really a symptom of anxiety. I was seeing this uptick in mental health issues in children and adolescents, and I was tying it in my practice to, you know, parents not either not being around enough for children or when they are around, uh, not being emotionally available. And so, yeah, I decided to write these two books to really address how parents are really incredibly important. Um, You know, I think as parents, sometimes we want to believe that children are born constitutionally a certain way. And then, you know, if they have problems, the child is to blame. But in fact, that isn't the way it is. Um, And, you know, and, and there are a lot of clinicians and psychiatrists and pediatricians who will reinforce that with parents that, uh, you know, there's just something wrong with your child, just medicate it away, which all you're doing is medicating symptoms. 
uh, not really getting to underlying depression and anxiety that's causing the symptoms. So as a clinician, I really focus on helping parents to understand how they uh, are critical to children's development and how they can make a real impact in changing the course uh, for their children for life. Before we get into a little bit more of the book, going back to what you were just saying, I, I remember in our previous conversation talking about resilience. And wasn't it, I mean, didn't you say that we, I mean, and I hear this all the time. I will not lie. I probably have multiple episodes where I have guests talking about how kids are so darn resilient. But didn't we discuss that that's not really the case? Yeah. Okay. So can you walk, walk me through that? Yeah. They are not born resilient. They are born incredibly neurologically fragile. And in fact, Adolescence is another period of development. As I said, a lot of uh, a lot's happening with hormonal changes, physical changes, um, which contribute to kind of reorganization of the brain. Um, and so the brain is again very vulnerable and fragile, and vulnerable to the environment. And so, if the environment is sensitive and empathic in the first three years and also in adolescence, then you can get your child over the hump uh, of what I call a major trauma. So people don't like to think of adolescence as a major trauma, but even if everything goes well and you have uh, raised a healthy child, um, it, it is a trauma. So, but no, children are not born resilient. They are born neurologically fragile and susceptible to their environment. And we are their environment. Um, and then in adolescence, again, very susceptible to their environment. We are their environment. And the complicated thing for adolescents is when they're really little, we are primarily their environment. When they get to be adolescents, they also have the real world. They have a social environment. They have friendships and teachers and um, their own kind of life, which is also part of their environment. But yet we are still a very important part of their environment. Something that came to mind that I feel like has been more on my heart lately, and I'm going back to the young kids, going mm -hmm. to my kids. And when you had said about how they're not born this way or the development, it's hard for me as a parent when I look at my two girls and I see how different they are mm -hmm. in the aspect of okay, both are super, super loving and like just uh, there's that. But I, and it's hard for me to work. I'm like totally tap dancing around it because as a mom, again, it's hard to say this, but one is a little bit more kind than the other. And anyone listening um, that knows our family well is kind of laughing, but it's hurting me inside when I say that, when I say the other one is sweet and salty, like, she can be, oh, you know, like she just, it is, a, they're two totally different people, but I am talking about two totally different behaviors where one would let maybe in a baby take a toy from her and she would just walk away where the other one is going to be that baby taking the toy away. And it makes me think like, obviously, 
I think we've raised them both pretty much the same, but that's where I get confused. And that's where I was hoping that maybe you could help, I don't know, put me at ease a little bit because it, it is concerning me. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd say every child is different um, and there is a piece of every child's personality um, that is constitutional, meaning when children are born, they're born either more sensitive or less sensitive, uh, more aggressive or less aggressive, um, you know, more reticent or more, you know, or more demanding. And so uh, that's where constitution really ends. Um, and that piece may be 10 to 20% of a child's personality. The rest is environment. And so even though you think you parent your children exactly the same, you don't because you have a different relationship with every child. Even if they're from the same parents, you have a different relationship with each child based on their personality. Um, and the fit, what we call the fit between parents or mothers and babies. Uh, some children are a better fit for certain parents than other children. Um, and you know we could get into why that is, but there's so many reasons, including parents' feelings about one gender or another, projections onto one child or another. Um, but the point being, we don't have the same relationship with all the children in our, in, in our family. And children, even though they come from the same siblings, even though they come from the same family, don't have the same parents. They um, internalize a different perception of their parents. Each child has a different mother and father, even if they're the same mother and father, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You can get siblings together and they actually don't have the same experience of the same set of parents. So yeah, I don't know if that explains it, but, um, and then you have on top of that sibling rivalry issues, um, which impact um, a lot of a child's development as well. That is part of their environment as well. Not just you, but also their, you know, their siblings and their placement in the family. But yeah, no, it's not the same for every child in your family. So is there anything that my husband and I shouldn't be doing or should be doing to embrace the different relationships that we have? Yes. And so I have a chapter in the new book. Um, so the way that I have this book organized, I think is, is interesting because I don't start with the parenting skills. I actually start by talking about what's happening in our environment as a society that is impacting adolescents, teenagers, mental health, um, because we know that there is a, a severe decline in mental health in children and primarily adolescents too now. Um, and so I start the book with really talking about the contributing factors. There's a lot of variables, you know, things like um, too much pressure in our environment, too much pressure at school, um, you know, global warming, social media. Um, I mean, there's so many environmental factors that are affecting adolescents, right? Um, you know, but then I go into understanding normal adolescent development and brain development. Um, and, and then the third section is really helping parents to understand the mental health issues. And I really go through eating disorders, ADHD, um, you know, technology addiction. I mean, I really go through as many mental health challenges, depression, anxiety, so parents are well-educated. 
the last section of the book, which is maybe the most important, but comes at the end for a reason, um, because you really have to have all the other information before you think about what you can quote unquote do as a parent. But the last, last section of the book is about uh, the last two chapters are the parenting part, right? So one chapter is about self-awareness. The whole chapter is focused on self-awareness. So as parents, we have to be incredibly tuned in and self-aware to us before we can really parent our children. And that means, you know, really being focused on how we feel about each individual child, what they trigger in us, uh, whether there's a history in our family that is impacting how we feel about our children, right? We know that history, you know, does one child remind us of our mother who we had a terrible relationship with, whereas the other one reminds us of our father who we had a wonderful relationship with. So understanding how history really uh, impacts us, but then really taking a good long look at yourself as a parent um, and understanding the individual relationship you have uh, with each child. We don't have the same relationship. Um, and also as a parent, thinking about things like our self-esteem, how we feel about ourselves. Uh, do we have um, adequate the inadequate ability to regulate our own emotions? And can we help a sensitive child? Let's say your child that's more aggressive. You said you have one child that's more aggressive than another. Mm -hmm. What we know is that aggression is constitutional, but it's also a reaction to being sensitive. A more sensitive child is more likely to be defensive and aggressive in the face of feelings of... Um, you know, feelings that they are not getting what they need from their parents or um, feelings of, of not really um, connecting with their parents. So they're more sensitive to disconnect, right? Um, and so a sensitive child is more likely to be an aggressive child. So how we react to their aggression is also how we handle our own emotions, things like patience, um, self-discipline, our own ability to be resilient to stress. Um, these are all things that parents have to reflect on in themselves before they can parent. And I think most parents don't, aren't consciously aware of these things. So I try to bring things that are unconscious uh, and maybe that's the psychoanalyst in me, things that are unconscious in us to a conscious level so we can parent better. Um, and lastly, the last chapter uh, in the book is really the parenting skills, you know, should I say the, the really, um, the, the, the go-to parenting skills to help raise resilient children. It is so important. I'm saying this to future parents, current parents, any parents, like to do that work because, and we probably talked about this before, but you work in kind of generations, meaning like you know that this generation did this and we don't really want to do that anymore. And then we just learn and we educate one another and we educate ourselves. But for instance, when you were talking and, and let's say with the more sensitive one that we have learned that even if she screams at the top of her lungs and she's so mad Mm -hmm. I think some parents would think, okay, that means you're going to go to your room and you don't act like that. Where I have learned with her, she just needs a hug. And 
I think that there have been people that have seen that in our lives and are like, uh, okay, they're rewarding her bad behavior. And it's not that. And and, and the only reason why it's people like you that come on the podcast that I can learn these things. It's the education of um, people in our lives with other educators and the books and stuff. Like, I just don't think you can equip yourself with enough education to understand how you're children are feeling and and why they're doing the things that they're doing. Well, I mean, you you make a very good point, which is that um you know, I think it's I think it's really hard for most parents um to not be just discipline and punishment based because I mm-hmm. think most parents are taught that. So we know we learn parenting skills on an unconscious level um from our own parents how they parented, we will parent unless we get therapy or we're more self-aware so we can change patterns that were not good patterns. If they were good patterns, then of course we want to repeat them. If we had sensitive, empathic parents who were very loving and uh, were more... um, we're more emotionally available to understanding our behavior rather than punishing it, then that's what we pass on. It's called generational expression with parenting. But if our parents were very, um, not very psychological, um, not attuned to emotions or underlying motivations for behavior, but just into punishing behavior and calling it bad behavior uh, and judging children um, and blaming children, then then that's what's passed on to us as parents. And, you know, my point of writing all these books and writing all the articles I do and publicly speaking out is to get parents to be more empathic towards children, young children and adolescents. Because I think there's a, there is an empathic impairment or, or disconnect between parents and children in most cases that I see clinically. Um, and, and that is that... Um, parents just want children to behave, but they don't want to really understand why they're not behaving and understanding their own role as parents in, in those, uh, emotional or behavioral issues. Um, and yes, I think we move away from, as we evolve psychologically, we move away from a judgment punitive um, paradigm to understanding our children's uh, underlying feelings which affect their behavior. That's why you hug your child. You hug your child because you know your child is acting out aggressively when she feels neglected or when she feels lonely or when she feels, um, you know, as if you've disconnected from her in some way. And by reconnecting with her, you're acknowledging the underlying sensitivity uh, and addressing the underlying emotional issues. You're being empathic. I want to pause this conversation with Erica to highlight one of the newest sponsors of the podcast, Elemental Aesthetics. One thing that I still struggle with in regard to talking about it, and actually it's still happening to me, is acne. When I was in high school, I suffered from acne where I had to go to multiple dermatologists and try all the things to get my acne to clear up. And Let me just say, if you've never suffered from acne, be so happy about that. It is 
a very traumatic experience and I don't wish it upon anyone. Even to this day, my acne is nowhere near what it was like when I was in high school, but one simple pimple can just put me into a tailspin. And so I was talking to Jennifer Warman Bloss about this. She's the owner of Elemental Aesthetics. And she said that those thoughts that I'm having are normal, that acne in general, especially if you suffered from it at a young age, is such a trigger for women. And so she has things to help you, especially if you have acne scarring. So you can learn more, elementalaesthetics.com, or if you would like to call or text Elemental Aesthetics, 314-279-6069. Just know that you are not alone with the acne fear and the acne thoughts. And I encourage you to check out elementalaesthetics.com. Let's get back to that conversation with Erica. I appreciate that. And I appreciate what you're doing, like I said. Um, And so I know I, I shouldn't be nervous about the adolescent years, but I am um, based on the things that I hear from friends. And I hope that when I have these tools placed in front of me, I can at least feel a little bit better uh, personally when it comes to some of these situations that we're going to face. So in your book, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, I mean, when <laughs> the anxiety at that age, like you said, that already exists with all the pressures of the outside world, but then... We just had this pandemic that we're still in, and these kids are just, oh, the time. Like, I have said on multiple occasions that as hard as it may be with the girls the ages they are, I am glad that my girls are going through this at their ages because Mm -hmm. some of these other stories and things that I have seen, I just... I can't imagine. So I was wondering if you would be able to kind of go that route right now in regard to the book and some tools to help parents. Right. So COVID was actually very good for very young children because they got to spend a lot more time with their with their parents. And so uh, the behavior of young children who I you know, treat in families improved because parents were more attentive to children, unless parents were really depressed or anxious themselves and, and were very angry uh, and impatient. You know, there was that going on. But, but overall, I think a lot of young children benefited uh, from COVID. And but older children, adolescents, did not benefit as much. Um, there were some benefits to them, like more sleep. They got more sleep, and more sleep means better mental health um, because schools have ignored this, uh, what we call sleep phase delay, which is in my book. Sleep phase delay means that um, adolescents uh, are on a different melatonin production schedule than adults, and they don't produce melatonin until later in the evening, so they don't get tired till one in the morning. And that means they need to sleep later and go to school later. And we have never admitted that as a society. So our teenagers are, are not, um, they do not get enough sleep. So there was that advantage. But other than that, um, adolescents are in the process of trying to separate from their parents and they need their peers and their social life to help them to 
complete that kind of development, which is one foot in and one foot out. But that one foot out, which eventually helps them pull the other foot out, um, is is very important. So they did suffer a lot from being isolated from their peers. Um, and, you know, it, it was very hard on them. That did not necessarily uh, equal uh, a mental health breakdown. We say that if there was an underlying condition, an underlying susceptibility to depression and anxiety because of, as I said, if if they didn't get enough early on and the foundation was not laid for that resilience, right? If they didn't have their parents from moment to moment soothing them and addressing their emotions from moment to moment, regulating them then that leaves a susceptibility. So later on in adolescence, if, if bad stuff happens, then they're more susceptible to breakdown. Uh, they're more susceptible to depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, ADHD, eating disorders, um, drug and alcohol addiction. These are things that have to have an under, they don't just pop off, off, off the top of a, a teenager's head. They have, there has to be an underlying uh, condition, right? And so we say that COVID was an adversity, it was a big adversity. And what it did is it took the lid off for a lot of teenagers who had a susceptibility, who didn't know they had a susceptibility, families who didn't know that their children had a susceptibility. And then COVID was the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm very careful to say to parents that um, a lot of teenagers got through this with um, great resilience because there was enough of a foundation they could bear the adversity that came. Um, the ones who didn't means that there was some underlying condition that was not uh, known, observed, apparent to parents and to the child. So then what do you do? Well, I mean, there, there's many things you can do. One is to be educated as a parent, which is another reason why I wrote this book. I call this book a mental health guide for parents of, of adolescents. And that's really important because it's soup to nuts, both in terms of prevention, which is very big for me. Like, I, you know, I'm used to just putting out fires and helping people once they have problems. You know, I treat a lot of families once there's already a situation, obviously, by the time they get to me, there are usually problems. But I'm big into prevention. And if you can prevent issues from happening, uh, and that's through parenting, um, then you uh, may not have to have uh, the, the problems. So I talk about prevention in the book, but I really educate parents about what to look for uh, when their children are starting to show signs that they may be breaking down. And that's really important because we say to repair something, you get a hole in a sweater, right? If you repair it right away, the hole doesn't get bigger. If you let the hole get bigger in a sweater, um, then it's very hard to repair. And it's not impossible, but yes, yeah, some even some are impossible. So we want to get to the issues as quickly as possible. But to do that, we have to have our eyes open as parents and we have to know what to look for. So telling parents and educating them about what to look for is important. And then what do you do about it? And the first thing you do about it is you reach out for help. Um, there's a lot, there still is a lot of stigma in this country. Uh, thank goodness, I think COVID has somewhat destigmatized therapy yeah. and getting help. But parents still don't know 
you know, they feel that if they reach out for help, that their child is crazy or they're terrible parents or yada, yada, right? They feel really guilty. Uh, and so what they do is they go into denial, right? My child will be fine. This is just growing up. They'll be fine. And if you don't get to the repair quickly, it makes it harder to repair. So I really encourage parents to reach out to get that help that they need from a qualified uh, child and adolescent mental health specialist, not from their pediatrician. They can go to their pediatrician and ask for a therapist's name, but a pediatrician is not qualified to deal with the mental health of the child. They're only qualified to deal with the body of the child, not the mind of the child. Um, And also, not to run to a psychiatrist unless the problem has gotten really, it's gone too far. If their child is suicidal, yes, of course, you go to an emergency room right away and you must see a psychiatrist. But if your child is just starting to show signs of either emotional or behavioral issues, the first person you want to go to is a child and adolescent therapist, a therapist, not a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists are not usually therapists. Today, psychiatrists are psychopharmacologists. They prescribe medication. You do not want to take your child to a psychiatrist right away because that's what, that is their lens. They will prescribe medication to silence the symptom of your child. They are not trained Uh, And many of them are not even have never even been in therapy themselves, um, which is interesting because it's not required as a psychiatrist to ever be in treatment yourself. Whereas a therapist who's been through uh, who either is a social worker or a psychologist who has, uh, you know, who has gone through a postgraduate training to become a psychotherapist, a child psychotherapist, um, they are required to be in therapy themselves. And most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, So why would you take your child to someone who's never been in therapy themselves? Right? Doesn't that make sense? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So getting your child to a qualified child and adolescent play therapist if they're younger talk therapist if they're older. And I also warn parents that if if your adolescent is capable of talking about feelings, you do not want to take them to a CBT therapist. You want to take them to a psychodynamic therapist, a feelings therapist, someone who's going to focus on their feelings and the underlying motivation for their behavior. If your child has difficulty talking about their feelings, then CBT can be helpful. But you do not want to rush to a... So as an educated parent, you know, I, I this is what my book is about. It's about distinguishing different kinds of treatment. So parents are actually knowledgeable. They are knowledgeable consumers. They don't just run out and say to their pediatrician, get me to a psychiatrist. They actually know that that's not the first stop on the train. It's the last stop if everything else fails. Right. I always say medication should be the last stop, not the first stop. We could have a whole other episode about the mental health and how it is getting better. Um, I, I do hear more people, not only adults, but parents talking about their kids going. It's just still the insurance aspect that just makes me irate. And I can only imagine that what you feel about that. Um, So another episode for that. In our final moments together, I want to address one thing that I know it, it deserves more time than this, but it is something that we're faced with right now. And it is social media. Um, Parenting now with social media 
has to be brutal. And we're not there yet, but we kind of are as far as what they're seeing. So I know that you address this in the book too. If you could give a couple highlights to help those that are listening. So social media is not the enemy. Um, It is, again, if anything in excess is not good for children. And what we know is that um, it can become an obsessive thing, particularly, as I said, if there are underlying emotional issues. If you have a child with very low self-esteem, if you have a child who um, is having social issues, meaning has trouble making friends, is feeling socially isolated, and this is before COVID, this has nothing to do with COVID. We have a lot of teenagers who feel very lonely and socially isolated um, and disconnected, right, from their peers or disconnected from their family. Um, you know, then social media is like a drug and not a good drug. Um, It increases uh, not such good things in terms of uh, brain development, meaning all teenagers, all adolescents, um, and I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours about adolescent brain development. I encourage you to get the book so you can really read up about it because it's so important as a parent to know about brain development at this time. But self-consciousness is a part of normal adolescent brain development. When you introduce social media into self-consciousness, which is existing already, um, it's a very bad combination because social media focuses on um, superficial, how we look, how things appear. Uh, It doesn't really have to do with depth of feeling, depth of emotion, depth of relationships. It's all surface. Um, and it really promotes surface at a, at a point in development when adolescents are already too preoccupied uh, with surface. So really, it's quite a bad thing uh, for most adolescents. Again, the ones who have a very solid, emotionally secure foundation can handle it to a certain degree, but it can easily get out of control. So again, there's so much more in the book. Um, Could I just address quickly something you said earlier that I don't want to just not address, which is um, I would like to give your listeners um, a tip that will help them if they don't have insurance, because you said mental health services are a rarity uh, because of cost. Okay. I am going to give you a tip, everyone who's listening, that no one knows. Okay. I am writing this down. Okay. (laughs) You can get wonderfully um, trained child therapists by contacting psychoanalytic institutes. So that's where I'm trained. So psychoanalysts aren't trained uh, after we get our social work degrees and our PhDs. We are trained in what's called psychoanalytic institutes. That means we have to be in treatment ourselves for a very long time to deal with our own issues. But We are also learning in courses and we're seeing patients and being supervised by very senior analysts. So I'm a senior analyst. And but the idea is that I supervise younger therapists who are becoming analysts. Now, they are already seasoned clinicians in their own right. Uh, It's a very long training. It's between five and 10 years long. Um, It's postgraduate five and 10 years. So these are already very seasoned clinicians. And you can go to a psycho contact, a psychoanalytic institute and say, my child needs child therapy or adolescent therapy from a psychoanalyst. And I know you have a low fee uh, referral service. Every psychoanalytic institute in this country has a low fee referral service where you can get therapy for as 
for as little as $35 a session. Oh, wow. And no one knows that. So I would like people to know that you can look up psychoanalytic institutes. And right now, everything can be remote. So it's made parts of the country which had no psychoanalytic institutes nearby. It's made this very accessible. You can contact a psychoanalytic institute in any city in the country uh, and say, I want my child to be seen. It's better to be seen in person. But if you don't have resources near you, um, or the only resources near you are a child psychiatrist. As I said, that shouldn't be where you go. Um, you want to go to a child therapist who's going to do talk therapy, play therapy, um, and help to diagnose, you'd say, help to understand whether that child does need to be seen by a psychiatrist. It's the first stop, yeah? Um, and, you know, what you can do now is contact any psychoanalytic institute in a city near you. So even if you're three hours away from Chicago, you can contact the psychoanalytic institute in Chicago and say, do you have a low fee referral service? Anyway, that's my tip. Yes. And I will make sure to put this on the show notes so individuals get that. I mean, because yeah, no, no clue on that. So That'll be on the show notes at jilldevine.com. In addition to what you are going to say as far as how people can reach you and how they can find both books. So they can reach me at www.comisar.com. That's K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. And both books are available, both Being There and Chicken Little are available now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, any any online bookstore that you like to use, they're all available. Um, my second book is being, uh, is the publisher is HCI. It's got huge distribution. So you'll even see this in lots of bookstores around you and everywhere and airports and everywhere. Um, so uh, yeah, so the idea is uh, you can just go online and look up Erica Commissar and Chicken Little or Erica Commissar and being there, or you can go to my website and both books are available with links to buy the book from my website. So what's next, Erica? You have another book getting ready to be written? I, I do. I do. Oh, I yes. Too early, but uh, my next challenge is I'm going to tackle um, helping parents that do divorce. You know, divorce isn't yeah. something that um, anybody wants to do or wants to do to their children, but sometimes it's necessary in helping parents who are going through divorces to um, divorce without with having the least uh, impact on their children's mental health. Well, I will be here ready to talk about that when that is available. In the meantime, if there is something that you feel needs to be discussed right away, come to me or vice versa, because you have been such a great asset for this podcast. So thank you. Thank you for having me on again, Jill. And before we officially wrap up this week's episode, a reminder of our newest podcast sponsor, Elemental Aesthetics. Their focus is on that natural beauty enhancement. They are not about those artificial looks at all. And something that you should know between the research and the knowledge they get from other experts in the industry, they have expertise in skin color of any kind. The technology that they go after and research, they make sure it works on any skin type because they want to customize every experience for every client. You can reach them at elementalaesthetics.com or you can call or text 
314-279-6069. And lastly, if you are listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, I would love if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast because when you do that, then the podcast, it has the ability to get into the hands of others. It's kind of like one of those things. When you do that, it's shared in different areas that it may not have been shared. I don't know how that technology works on that, but I do know your help will help it get to others. So thank you in advance for your support of Two Kids and a Career. 